Well, good morning. Good to see so many and the singing has been wonderful as has been mentioned before. And talk about singing, we're going to be reading about the singing in heaven this morning. So turn with me, we've been going through the book of Revelation and we are in chapter 5. And we're going to have a break from Revelation because I'm going to have a break. Uh, you probably know, most of you, that leading a group to Israel, we leave on Thursday morning. Don't you feel bad for me? Uh, but we're really looking forward to it and uh, we value your prayers. So I'll be back on a while all through December for the first time in my 34 years here and uh, hope to be back on the 4th of January uh, early next year and we'll pick up from Revelation chapter 6 when I come back. But uh, let me lead you in prayer as we commit our time to God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that uh, like the Apostle John, we have scripture and we too have been given a glimpse into heaven. And we pray that as we come to consider this passage before us this morning, we ask that your spirit would indeed lift up the Lord Jesus before us because we know that he is lifted up in heaven, that he is in his majesty and glory, and that he indeed will one day come again to claim his church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to minister to us through your spirit by your word this morning, and may Jesus be honoured. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Where are my specs? <laughs> This is serious. Hey, Jordan, can you grab the specs on my desk? Oh, he's gone outside. Hmm. Um, thanks, Ian. It's There should be one on my old desk. I don't know where my... If you see a pair of specs with a grey case, you'll know it's mine. I won't be preaching without my specs, I can tell you. Sorry, I've got it. It's all right. It's my <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I was panicking there for a while. <laughs> well, we come to uh, Revelation 5, and I'd like to ask you to um, imagine how the Apostle John felt. He's on the island of Patmos, as we've seen. He's a prisoner there, and he's doing it hard. He's doing hard labor. And the Lord Jesus appears to him, as, has been, as we have seen uh, in the first chapter. And what a wonderful privilege for John, the apostle, as a prisoner, to be able to have this vision of his Lord and Saviour. John had spent three years with Jesus as Jesus ministered and preached the kingdom of God and healed people and proclaimed uh, the gospel. And now John is on his own. He must have been rather down the dumps and Jesus appears to him. And he grants him this vision and what a wonderful vision it is. And uh, we see that worship is the proper and heavenly response to the fact that Jesus is sovereign over all things. And here today we see Jesus in his glory as his person and work is highlighted in this chapter. Chapter 5 is a continuation of uh, chapter 4 and I'll point that out. In chapter 4 God is highlighted on his throne and here in chapter 5 the scene shifts to the Lamb. 
the Lord Jesus. So let's read it. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with the seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May God give us grace to understand his word. Again this morning we are dealing with the question, what is heaven like? And before I go any further, I want to say that heaven is a real place. Now that might seem obvious to all of us, but I say that because I want to highlight the fact that people today Think of heaven as some sort of celestial life of leisure where people float on clouds or something along those lines and they're playing and enjoying life on a higher level of existence. The scripture says that heaven is a real place and that those who know the Lord will be presented there when we leave this life or if we are raptured when he returns. Notice also how many times we read that John saw we saw it in chapter 4 as well. In, in chapter 4, he sees a door standing open in heaven. And John is say, uh, told to come up here. And he sees the throne room and the one who, sat, who sits on the throne. 
Jesus as it were as it were parts the curtain and gives John a glimpse of the throne room of heaven. John was given the vision of him who sits on the throne and of those who are gathered around the throne. The worship around the throne consisted of giving praise to God. We saw that in chapter 4. God who is worthy to receive honor and glory as the creator. And now in chapter 5, as I said, it's a continuation of chapter 4. And the praises in chapter 4 centered around the truth of God being worthy to receive glory and honor. But here in chapter 5, the scene changes and the focus is on the Lamb. And the songs that are sung have to do with redemption. For example, you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. Here we have more insight into what goes on around, around the throne of God. And we will see that worship is not only the response of the redeemed, but also the response of the heavenly hosts, the myriads of angels who serve the triune God. And as the final verse tells us, the response of all creation. And so the scene opens, drawing attention to a scroll in the hand of one who sits on the throne. And this is what John saw and heard. In fact, the opening phrase, I saw, introduces the various scenes described in the chapters and endorses John as an eyewitness. And he tells us primarily that he saw and heard three things. First, he sees a scroll in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Secondly, he sees a lamb. Thirdly, he sees and hears the worship in heaven. So I'd like to go through those three areas and explain the text and make application for us and then to close with a couple more areas of application. Firstly, John sees the scroll. Now what is the scroll? What does it tell us? If you're like me, you will be curious to know what exactly was written in that scroll and why it is sealed up. I wondered what it was that was written in that scroll. I asked the theologians in the church office, but they weren't very helpful. <laughs> so I had to do the hard work myself. In the first century, there were mainly two types of written documents. There were parchments and there were scrolls. Parchments were made from the skins of sheep and goats, and it, the, its name came from the Latin word pergamena. And if you remember back to the Church of, uh, uh, the church of Pergamum, uh, you would have remembered that the city was the center of parchment invention and production. By the 4th century, parchment was used widely for books due to its durability. Scrolls were made from papyrus from the Nile Delta in Egypt and usually written on one side. But the scroll that John sees is called an opistograph because it has writing on both sides. The scroll is full, in other words, indicating that God's decrees are complete. There is no more room for anything else to be added to this scroll, nothing to be decided on. The plan is complete. It's full. This scroll, we are told, is also sealed with seven seals. The next few chapters will tell us that each seal is opened separately. 
and that gives us a clue as to what is contained in the scroll and that's what's important and so we look for some answers the first clue relates to the fact that there was writing on both sides of the scroll now as I said when we began Revelation a lot of the Old Testament needs to be seen in the book of Revelation and here we have it again go back to Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 8 to chapter 3 and verse 3 where the prophet Ezekiel is given a scroll with writing on both sides and it contained words of lament words of mourning and words of woe in other words the scroll that Ezekiel held in his hand was a book of judgment and the same seems likely here the this is salvation and the judgment that comes to those who reject it now why do I say that because if you read the next chapter of Revelation when we come to it in January we find we will find that the seals of the scroll are opened by the Lamb the Lord Jesus and it reveals the wrath of God falling on the earth in various catastrophes in other words it deals with judgment and so we can safely say that the scroll was dealing with the wrath of God on the earth here was the future purposes of God the, the scroll is full the decrees of God if you like it was speaking about what was to come here was the redemptive plan of God for the world the way he would purify his people how he would bring vindication for his people how he would enable them to overcome to the blood of the lamb the struggles and the victories of the gospel and the judgment upon those who reject the gospel the scroll highlights the fact that justice will be brought to bear upon the world and so all this was dependent upon someone being able to open that scroll and unravel the purposes and promises of God for his people in order to bring them to heaven like those who are already there and to execute justice on those who reject the gospel and so this angel he is referred to as a mighty angel it's probably the angel Gabriel or Michael and he and he asked the question as to who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll and I guess you would expect the 24 elders and the 45 living creatures which we've seen in chapter 4 that they would have stepped forward in order to open that scroll but that's not the case we are told that there is silence in heaven because no one responds and so John is overcome with grief and the text says I sobbed in loud wails over and over again now why does John cry you would wonder wouldn't you I think John cries because as we saw in chapter one uh, chapter four he was told to come up and that he would be and it would be told to him and he would see what is to come what is to be revealed and so no one stepping forward to open the scroll we're told John weeps John's tears represent the tears of all God's people says one writer he weeps because there is no one to effect God's purposes to not even discover what they are 
He weeps because he realizes there will be no vindication or salvation for God's people unless someone opens that scroll. He weeps because if there is no salvation, people won't know that their sins are forgiven and that there is no way of salvation for God's people. This, that sinners can come to repentance, those who are lost, needy, and haven't heard the gospel. Such was the heart of the apostle. And he weeps. Let's pause for a minute. I want to ask the question. I wonder if we have such a heart for the lost. A heart that moves us to weep inwardly for those who haven't heard of the salvation that God offers and his purposes for the world. Here John weeps because unless there is someone to open the scroll, this news of salvation would not be known. And not even the highest order of angels, those moral beings who do God's will, is worthy to open this scroll. If there isn't someone, the earth will be damned. It will be finished. But John needn't have wept because one of the elders said to him, Don't weep. Stop crying, John. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and he is able to open the seals. Jesus, the John's saviour and redeemer, is the one who is worthy. And you really cannot criticise John for weeping when you think about it, because if Jesus wasn't there to open the seals, it will be a sad situation. We will all weep if that's the case. If God's purposes are not known and accomplished, then we will all despair. There is a reason to weep. There will be no eternal life, no triumph for the gospel. Only Jesus and Jesus alone makes all this possible. But then John looks and he sees the lamb. Notice that secondly. I said heaven is not only a real place, but heaven is also a place where redemption is highlighted. It's real redemption, both beginning with R. You might remember that. Look at verse 6. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into, the, or into all the earth. John speaks in well-attested Old Testament language about the Messiah. He's referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now once again, if you know your Old Testament, you realize that in Genesis chapter 49, you might like to read this when you go home because it's an interesting prophecy there. In Genesis 49, Judah is described as a lion. And King David was to come from the tribe of Judah. And God promises there in Genesis 49 that his seed would establish a throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. But hang on a minute. That prophecy is while Israel is in Egypt, in captivity. So how come they're talking about a king? Because the king had, yet not, not, had not as yet been established in Israel, the, king, the king's rule. But you see, the prophecy deals with the fact that a king will reign and his seed would establish his throne forever. Who's that? Jesus. Comes from the line of David. 
And here John speaks of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of David. But what's interesting is that this lion appears as a lamb as though he was slain. Now you know the lion is an animal that is strong and wild and dangerous, whereas the lamb is an animal that's easily preyed on and harmless. But have a look again at the text because this is no ordinary lamb. He has seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. Now as we've seen before, seven speaks, the, word, the number seven in the book of Revelation speaks of completeness, perfection. And so the seven horns signify the power and the authority which the Lord Jesus has. The seven eyes, it speaks of the insight and the knowledge that the Lord Jesus has. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing. The seven spirits, of course, refer to the Holy Spirit in his completeness or fullness, as we saw in chapter 1. Have you noticed also that this speaks of Jesus in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king? As prophet, he takes the scroll, the word of God. As priest, he is the lamb who was slain. As king, he has the power and authority displayed by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And here John, in the midst of his weeping, realizes, as the elder says, that this lion lamb is worthy to open the scroll. But why was he worthy to open the scroll? The text goes on to tell us. On what basis? Verse 5 gives us the answer. It says, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. It's because Jesus has triumphed or conquered. How has he conquered? How has he triumphed? Was it through leading an army? Was it through con uh, conquering by wielding a sword, as many have done and do so today? Not so. Look at verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God men from every tribe and language and people and nation. John is saying here's the reason. Jesus triumphed because he through his death or his blood purchased and ransomed the people for God. That's why he is worthy. He is worthy because he is willing to leave glory and come down to earth as a man and suffer and die, to face injustice, to be wrongly condemned to death, to have his body beaten, to be rejected by men as a man of sorrows. And that's what Jesus did. He triumphed over death. He defeated the devil. He conquered sin. This lion took on the role of a lamb and gave his life for your redemption and mine. He is the lion, the great conqueror of sin and death, the one who holds the plan of the whole universe in his hand. This lion is the lamb, the suffering lamb, the suffering servant of Isaiah, who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And so he alone is worthy to open the scroll he alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise, as verse 12 tells us. His glory came through the lion being willing to become the lamb. 
and to be led to the slaughter for your sin and for mine. The lion, the lamb-like lion, my friends, this is meekness and majesty. The lamb and the lion. Glory came through suffering. It says to us that this lion of the tribe of Judah gave himself as a sacrifice to redeem his people. And so what we have is the king dying for his people when it should be the other way around. It should be the people dying for their king. So verse 7 says, He came and he took the scroll. And John uses the perfect tense there, suggesting that Jesus not only took the scroll, but he still holds the scroll. He holds the scroll because he continues to reign over the events of human history. And notice that John says this lamb was standing. Standing because he is the conqueror with power and authority next to the throne. I'm reminded of what Stephen saw when he was being stoned to death. We're told that he was given a vision. And he saw Jesus, and Jesus was standing as his advocate to receive him into glory, to stand as his defense attorney in order to receive Stephen into glory. And here John sees the lamb standing, never again to be slain. Now the risen glorified Jesus before whom the heavenly hosts bow down in worship. And this conqueror will also be someone to be reckoned with because if you're not covered by his blood, my friends, you will come under his wrath. And so this lamb is also to be feared, feared as the lion lamb because the day is coming when all those who have turned their back on him and have not worshipped him with their lives will incur his wrath. And we'll see that as we go through the book of Revelation. So my friends, worship the Lamb. Worship Him today. Worship Him with your lives and you will not incur His anger on the day of judgment. Rather, you will be numbered amongst those who are around the throne, worshipping and praising Him because He alone is worthy to open that book. And so John need not have wept because there is someone who is worthy Salvation and vindication for God's people will be possible because the Lamb is worthy. Here's the reason then why the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the myriads of angels and every creature worship the Lamb. So notice thirdly, John sees and hears the worship in heaven. Not only is heaven a real place, not only is heaven a redemptive place, but heaven is also a responsive place. John tells us that the four living creatures and the 24 elders had bowls of incense in their hands depicting the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song. They respond with worship, don't they? And here part of the essence of true worship is the prayers of the people of Jesus. The 24 elders and the living creatures offer him their prayers because he is the redeemer of his people. Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, we are told. They are golden bowls because these prayers are precious. And they are full of incense. 
and because the prayers are pleasing to the Lord. There too is Old Testament background there where we are told that the prayers are like incense going up to God. They are of great value because prayer was made possible through the death of the Lamb. My friends, it tells me that our prayers are not ignored by God. The Lord knows our request and he will deal with them. What an encouragement to pray. Our prayers are valued before God. He delights in the prayers of his people. Don't see prayer as some sort of drudge and, you know, hard, hard to maintain in your life and so on and so forth. You don't have to pray out loud to pray. You don't have to sit quietly to pray. You can pray while you're walking around on the streets, on the bus, wherever you are. Because your mind is communicating with God. Who reads our mind, he knows our thoughts. Our prayers are valued before God. He delights in the prayers of his people. So much so that although he knows our hearts, although he reads our thoughts and he knows exactly what we ask or need before we ask him, yet he wants us to come to him in prayer because he delights in us bringing them before him. We pray because we know that we are utterly dependent on him for all of life and he gives us the desires of our hearts in accordance with his will. Are you a man and a woman of prayer or a woman of prayer? Does prayer form an integral part of your life? Do you pray not only when you're having your quiet time, but throughout the day as you mix it in the office with your mind? Do you pray with your mind uh, for whatever you are facing during the day? Prayerfully bring it before God as you interact with people, before you talk to the boss perhaps, to grant you wisdom in what you're saying. Notice that they not only pray, but they also respond with singing. They respond with prayer, they respond with singing and praising. John says they sang a new song. Now in what sense is this a new song? You see, it was new in the sense that it was a song consequent to redemption. Redemption had been accomplished and there is rejoicing in heaven. This song is distinguished from the song sung in heaven before the Lord Jesus achieved the redemption for his people. This song will continue to be new in the sense that as the people of God enter glory, they too will sing this song and praise their Redeemer who has blessed them with salvation. And you can only imagine how glorious and magnificent this worship would have been. Given the number of people around the throne, as verse 11 points out, it would be mind-blowing, wouldn't it? And you and I are going to be part of that crowd one day. If you know Christ in this life. And that's exactly what it will be if you belong to Jesus as one of his people. You will form part of that great multitude around the throne. The great number from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. From Australia, from Africa, from America, from China, Italy, Korea, wherever you come from. Wherever people, God's people have been chosen and given salvation. They will be around that throne. And we will worship the Lamb. The gospel knows not the color of person's skin their language, their background, red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. From every tribe, every nation, and every tongue.
But I wondered why we are given these details about prize in heaven. And as I thought about it, one reason is so that you and I can start singing now. My friends, we were created to start singing now and not to wait for eternity. And by singing, I don't mean literally singing as well, even though singing can, can be part of that. Just as we pray now on earth, so we sing to the Lamb. Start singing now, singing now to the praise of the Lamb. Let your life be a song of praise to the Lamb who was slain. And if every song begins and comes from within your heart, then the way you live your life must be for His glory. The way you respond to adversity in your relationships, your finances, your partner's life, your work, your sport, all should be a song of glory to the Lamb. You sing with your whole being, praising God for who He is and what He's done for you. So I call on you this morning to respond, to honor and admire Him and sing to Him, for He is worthy. Worthy for who He is and what He's done for us. To admire Him, admire him for his majesty and yet for his meekness to admire and honor him for his glory and yet his glory mingled with humility to admire and honor him because he is worthy and to join the thousands upon thousands of angels who worship the one who was slain to worship and honor him to sing to him because he is the one who holds the future he holds your future and my future in his hand and he will be the one who will set into motion the events that are yet to come which are recorded in that scroll and which we will examine in the following chapters. But notice what they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain by your blood you ransomed people from God for every nation, tribe, language and and people, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. All those verbs are in the aorist tense. What does that mean? In other words, they are all completed actions. They are things that Jesus has accomplished. They are things that Jesus has done. So when you come to fight in Jesus, it's because of the completed work of Jesus. You don't need to add anything to the work of Christ. You know, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. You don't need to partake in the Lord's Supper to be saved. You don't need to do this, this and this because the text tells us that it's all completed. It's all done, done and dusted. And John goes on to say, you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That's the privilege of belonging to Jesus Christ. And they will reign on earth, he says, the only verb in the future tense. They will, they will come a day. As John says, they will reign on earth. They will come a day where the dynamics of this earth will be turned upside down and the meek shall inherit the earth, as Jesus said. And so this first song in verse 9 was sung by the living creatures, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. The second song in verse 12 
was sung by a countless number of angels joined with them. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the third song in verse 13 will be sung by all creation. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All of creation, you and me included. These songs are not a new creation of truth, are they? But they are songs that Jesus, speaking of Jesus and the qualities and the characteristics he already possesses. Wisdom, strength, honor, glory, might and prize. And what's more, their song is not only about what Jesus possesses, but their song is also about the proper response to what Jesus possesses. What do we hear the, the angels say and the elders say? Amen. Amen. And they fall down and they worship him. I'll say it again as I did at the start. Worship is the proper and heavenly response to the fact that Jesus is sovereign over all things. So as I close, just two areas briefly of application. Firstly, we see the example of Jesus who triumphed through being slain and was worthy to open the seal. Jesus whose glory came through dying or suffering, whose victory came in sacrifice and weakness. And Jesus is our example. And in him we see a pattern for the way the Christian life is to be lived. The life that comes through dying to self. The strength which comes through weakness. You see the thinking and the drive of society is that we assert ourselves. That we endeavor to be the number one person. To seek prominence and prize at all costs even if it means that you put others down or trample them underfoot in order to achieve your goal. That's the thinking of society, the thinking of the world. But here in the example of Jesus, we find that the Christian life calls for sacrifice. It calls for seeking the good of others, to deny yourself in order to be a blessing to others. That is part of what it means to live the Christian life. It's a willingness to put others before yourself. It's a dying to self, a seeking the good of others, a willingness to die to self and live to be a blessing to others. I read the true story of nine physically or mentally disabled competitors running one of the races at the Seattle Special Olympics. One of the, boy, one of the boys in the race stumbled and fell and he began to cry. So what did the others do? They turned around and they went back to pick him up. One of the girls with Down syndrome gave him a kiss and all of them proceeded to finish to the finishing line arm in arm. The crowd gave them a standing ovation which lasted 10 minutes. You see through personal sacrifice by being willing to go back to help that other person, through personal sacrifice they all achieved a far greater triumph. 
Are we willing to die to self and live for Christ? And that involves both your spiritual walk as you seek to obey Christ, that even at great sacrifice and expense to your uh, and expense to yourself and your wants and your desires, as well as seeking to live a selfless life towards others. In other words, do you have time for others? And then finally, the truth that comes before us is that all types of people make up the family of God's redeemed. Now how can I apply that? Well, I'll tell you in two minutes. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. There is no exclusivity in the family of God. God's kingdom is multicultural, both on earth and in heaven. God is no respecter of persons. For God so loved the world, the ethnic world, people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. And we see it here, don't we? That God so loved the world, the ethnic world. It tells us, doesn't it, that the gospel is for all people? It's because the gospel is for all people that we as a church place the work of missions and missionaries as an important part in our ministry. It's because our God is a missional God. And flowing on from that, the gospel also demands that we treat all people equally and with respect, irrespective of what backgrounds they come from. To ignore, to mistreat or feel a sense of superiority towards another person or another group would say that you don't know the gospel and its power in your life. And so we love and treat all people equally and in that way we say to the world that we are Jesus' people. We at Donville are a people from many countries and backgrounds in life, including myself. God in his grace has saved us and given us new life and we are part of this truth that there will be people from every nation. So let me ask, do you accept and treat everyone as equal as brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, I know that some will be closer friends to you than others, but that's not what I'm asking. For example, what's your attitude and approach to new Australians and migrants who perhaps struggle with language and integration into Australian culture. Those in our Chinese church perhaps. Do you seek to embrace them into the church family and seek to befriend them and help them where, and where you can and should? Your approach and attitude to this will say a lot about your personal walk with Christ because that's what Christ calls on us to do. To not do it would be to not offer to God true worship, because true worship consists of faith and obedience. Because faith and obedience would demand that we not only take the gospel to all people, but that we treat and respect all people equally, because we are all made in the image of God. And so, my friends, as I close, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? The chapter highlights this. It tells us that Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is our redeemer. 
is worthy of our worship as individuals. We respond with our lives. It is the people of God who have been saved from sin and death and hell who know and appreciate what they have been saved from and who would want to give him the prize and glory as their saviour, to worship him to the lives we live as individuals, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. But our text also speaks of the worship of God's people collectively around the throne as they together prize and honour Jesus. It says to us that we are to declare his praises in our worship, doesn't it? As we gather together, as we, do, as we ha are here this morning as well. The heart of worship is declaring to the Lord how majestic he is and how great his works are. How wonderful his redeeming power has been. In other words, in worship we articulate the truth about himself. We speak, we sing, and we hear the truth about him from his word. We sing, we speak, and hear of him who alone is worthy to receive prize, honor, and glory. And as I said in my previous message, worship is not about you and me and our wants and our desires. It's all, always about the one who is our Redeemer. That's what worship is. It's about his finished work at Calvary because he was slain and with his blood he purchased people for God. And that's why he was worthy to open the scroll. So in our worship we speak not only of the work of Jesus but also of the benefits that flow to us, his people, to whom he has applied his redeeming work. Because he alone is worthy to receive power, wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and prize. To him be the prize forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, what a blessing to know that in knowing Jesus in this life, we will be part of that great multitude in heaven, worshipping the Lion Lamb, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We see him, the perfect son of man, in his living and in his suffering and dying, the true and better Adam, come to save us sinful human beings, and we would give him our worship and praise in his name. Amen.